Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. ...the Normandy coast. In September, although it was late in the year and a dangerous time for campaigning, Henry himself took ship on the south coast, heading to Calais, with a very large army of perhaps 15,000 men at his back. They spent a few days in camp before marching twenty miles down the coast to the nearest French city of significance, which happened to be the port town of Boulogne. Four columns of English troops descended on the town and laid siege to it. According to Virgil, there was a resolute garrison in the town which energetically defended it, but before there was a recourse to hard fighting, Behold, suddenly a rumour spread through the camp that peace had been arranged. So it had. Charles's aim was to annex Brittany, not to involve himself in a resuscitated version of the Hundred Years' War, and he was quite happy to pay Henry to accept his wishes. The result was a Treaty of Etaples, sealed on November the 3rd, 1492, by which Henry stood down his invasion and withdrew from Breton matters, and Charles agreed to pay the English a vast indemnity for their war expenses, along with the promise of a very generous pension of 50,000 gold crowns a year for the following 15 years. Crucially, he also agreed to stop assisting pretenders to Henry's throne. After three months of campaigning and virtually no bloodshed, save for the death of a rather overzealous knight by the name of John Savage, who was ambushed by French soldiers in front of Boulogne, fought back rather too lustily rather than submitting, and was killed. Henry took his army back across the Channel in a sort of triumph. Henry's uncompromising actions against Warbeck and the French ensured that the court of Charles VIII was only a temporary stop for Warbeck. He wouldn't, however, be thwarted, and as the Treaty of Etaples closed doors in France, the pretender moved on, making his way to the court that had become the main European focus of anti-Tudor sentiment, the circle of the arch-schemer of the Netherlands, Margaret of York, Dowager Duchess of Burgundy. For Margaret to embrace Perkin Warbeck as her own nephew, surely knowing full well that he was a fraud, was a mark of her political ruthlessness and devotion to the memory of her brothers. Despite Henry VII's marriage to her niece, Margaret would never accept that he had the right to rule and was happy to pursue any means of discomforting him. What people commonly say is true, wrote Bernard André. Envy never dies. Certainly it never died at Mechelen, and Margaret welcomed Warbeck to her dazzling court, schooling him on his backstory from her own memories of life as a member of the House of York, and introducing him to the great men in her continental circle. 
Chief among these was Maximilian, King of Germany, who was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 1493 at a ceremony to which Warbeck was invited. Here was another player to whom he appeared to be a well-placed pawn. The man styling himself as Richard IV was treated with the reverence due to a real king, travelling a while with Maximilian, while Margaret made contact with dissidents in England attempting to stir them to rebellion in the name of the pretender. Slowly but surely, the plot to promote this young man and place him on the English throne was gathering momentum. None of this was in the slightest bit amusing to Henry VII. According to Virgil, Henry feared that unless a deception was quickly recognized as such by all, some great upheaval would occur. Most disturbingly, the king began to receive reports that the rebel circle in the Netherlands had connections in England, some perilously close to the royal household. Those rumoured to be in treasonable contact with Warbeck included the ambitious and shifty John Radcliffe, Lord Fitzwalter, Sir Robert Clifford, and William Worsley, the Dean of St. Paul's. In the spring of 1493, the King learned that this lordly cabal had sent Clifford to the Low Countries to meet Warbeck, assess whether he was really Richard Duke of York, and, if satisfied with what he saw, inform him that he could expect a warm welcome if he should decide to cross the Channel and claim his throne. In response, Henry flew into a state of high defence, lasting for nearly eighteen months, during which he sent spies to the continent to feed back information about Warbeck and the rebels, and attempted to plant undercover agents in his circle. He also placed the English ports under tight surveillance, circulated propaganda both at home and abroad to tarnish the pretender's claims to royal stock, and imposed trade embargoes against the merchant towns of the Netherlands. Young Prince Henry's elevation to Duke of York in November 1494 was part of this strategy of undermining Warbeck. In creating a legitimate princely Duke of York, there was less room for a false one. Yet Prince Henry's investiture as Duke of York didn't end Warbeck's conspiracy. Rather, the danger seemed to creep ever closer to the crown. Late in 1494, Henry's agents managed to turn Sir Robert Clifford from the pretender's cause, milking from him a huge amount of intelligence in the process. The most shocking revelation was that a supposed Yorkist sympathiser was to be found at the heart of the royal household and family. Sir William Stanley, the king's chamberlain and step-uncle, the hero of Bosworth and brother to the kingmaker Thomas, Earl of Derby, has supposedly been heard to say of Warbeck that he would never take up arms against the young man if he knew for certain that he was indeed the son of Edward. If Englishmen of the highest rank were prepared to believe that Richard was alive and might return to reclaim his crown, then Henry couldn't afford to treat Warbeck with anything other than deadly seriousness. Stanley's reported wavering was a hard blow to Henry VII, but he dealt with it swiftly. Despite the risk of antagonizing Derby, the king put Sir William on trial at Westminster Hall, 
on January the 30th and 31st, 1495. Stanley was condemned of a capital crime and put to death by beheading on February the 16th. Meanwhile, security measures were stepped up even further, both at home, where coastal defences were sufficient to repel an attempted landing at Deal in Kent on July the 3rd, 1495, and in Ireland, where Sir Edward Punnings was sent with a mandate to impose royal discipline by severe and authoritarian means. Still, however, Warbeck remained at large, following his aborted invasion of Kent, he sailed via a now hostile island to the kingdom of the Scots and sought the protection of King James IV. The inhabitants there, deceived by his hints and inventions, believed him to be Richard IV and tenaciously adhered to him, wrote André. The truth was that once again he served as a tool for a greater lord's anti-English ambition, and once again he was a failure. James IV recognized him as Prince Richard of England and gave him shelter, men, a handsome expense account for clothes, servants and horses, and an aristocratic wife, in the form of Lady Catherine Gordon, daughter of an earl and the king's distant cousin. In September 1496, the Scots invaded the north of England on Warbeck's behalf, burning and pillaging the unfortunate villages of the border country. But the sight of the pretender's flag provoked only apathy in the hearts of the Englishmen who saw it, and almost as soon as they had come, James and his would-be prince were scuttling back over the border, having achieved precisely nothing. Henry's response to Scottish backing for the irritant Warbeck was uncompromising. The Parliament of January 1497 granted heavy taxation for the purpose of sending a massive military force north for the proper correction of James IV's cruel and wicked deeds. The invasion, intended for summer, never materialized, because the weight of the taxation on Henry's English subjects provoked a tax rebellion in June of the same year, in which thousands of Cornishmen marched all the way to Blackheath, and had to be routed by a military force under Giles, Lord Daubney, Sir William Stanley's successor as Lord Chamberlain. However, the seriousness of Henry's intentions convinced James IV that Warbeck was probably more trouble than he was worth, and the young masquerader was packed off to continue his adventures elsewhere. Warbeck sailed for Cork in July 1497, and two months later, he made what would be his final play for recognition, invading Cornwall at Land's End in the rather forlorn hope of rekindling the rebellious spirit of the early summer. A few thousand restless yokels gathered beneath his banner and laid siege to Exeter, but they were easily scattered by Edward Courtney, Earl of Devon, and by the end of the month Warbeck was captured. At Taunton on October the 5th, he was brought before the king. At last, he admitted that he wasn't Richard IV, and offered up a full confession of his origins, bringing a formal end to his pretensions. Like Simnel, Warbeck was kept honorably at the royal court once he had been exposed as a fraud. His wife, Lady Catherine, joined the queen's service, and was treated extremely well on account of her nobility.
Warbeck, however, lacked the good sense that had led Simnel to behave himself in royal service. In June 1498, while he was travelling with the royal court, he attempted to escape. He was recaptured at Sheen, and, after twice being humiliatingly displayed in the stocks and made to confess his imposture again in public, he was thrown into the Tower of London for the rest of his life. As it transpired, that wouldn't be a very long time. One of his fellow captives in the Tower was Edward, Earl of Warwick, the man whom Simnel had impersonated. Warwick was now twenty-four, and it would seem that his long imprisonment had addled his brain. Polydore Virgil wrote that he had been so far removed from the sight of man and beast that he couldn't easily tell a chicken from a goose. In the autumn of 1499, a plot was concocted between the two prisoners and a few citizens of London, possibly agent provocateur, who planned to break them out of the tower and put Edward on the throne in Henry's place. Escaping, or even plotting escape, was a serious crime, and the punishment could be harsh. Both men were tried in Westminster Hall before John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, holding court in his capacity as Lord High Steward. Warwick was beheaded on Tower Hill on November the 28th, 1499, and Warbeck was hanged at Tyburn, having been forced to confess for the final time that he was no Plantagenet, but an adventurer, an impostor, and a fraud. As the century drew to a close, noble hairs still rolled and traitors' legs still kicked pathetically in the breeze beneath the hangman's noose. If the cycle of violence that had engulfed the English crown for nearly five decades seemed finally to be coming to an end, it was only because there were so few candidates left to kill. Chapter 21 Blanche Rose The ships came into Plymouth Harbour at three o'clock on October the 2nd, 1501, having sailed through strong winds, huge rolling waves, and the terrifying flash of lightning over a boiling sea. The fleet had taken five days to make its way from the Cantabrian port of Laredo, moving to the northern tip of Brittany before heading due north to the south coast of England. Despite the wretched weather, the valuable cargo had arrived safely. A fifteen-year-old Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon, stepped off to receive the choreographed acclaim of the assembled crowd, who hailed her, according to one of her companions, as if she had been the saviour of the whole world. She was certainly, in a way, the saviour of England. A marriage alliance with Ferdinand and Isabella, the joint rulers of Spain, had been more than twelve years in the making. As agreed in principle under the Treaty of Medina del Campo of 1489, Catherine had already been married twice by proxy to Prince Arthur, but now she was here in person to play her part in the creation of England's new royal dynasty. This was, in a sense, the high point of Henry VII's kingship. For sixteen years he had fought a gruelling battle to maintain his grip on the crown that he had taken at Bosworth, seeing off pretenders and plots, decorating his realm with infinite symbols 
and reminders of Tudor triumph, and, with his wife Elizabeth, diligently creating a new royal family. He'd seen off dynastic plots and a major tax rebellion. He had defended his crown on the battlefield, and subsequently through the diplomatic networks of Europe. He had kept a tight grip on royal finance, directing much of the business of England's revenue collection through his chamber rather than through the exchequer, a policy that demanded much of his time, but allowed him to ensure that he was in command of the detail of policy, and to avoid the criticisms that so many of his predecessors had faced concerning the financial feebleness of the English crown. He had sailed a large army to France, and used it to extract a handsome pension. And now, to cap it all, he was about to celebrate both an alliance with a major continental power, and a marriage that would be fruitful enough to secure Tudor rule for a second generation. Arthur and Catherine were married the following month at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, on Sunday, November the 14th, amid high ceremony, and with the arms of the three kingdoms traditionally claimed by the House of York, England, France, and Spain, prominently displayed, alongside all the other heraldic symbols of Henry's monarchy, the Welsh dragons, the greyhounds of Richmond, and the ubiquitous rose. The whole cathedral was hung with expensive Arras tapestries, showing noble and valiant acts, and the besieging of noble cities. Henry and Elizabeth watched from a discreet viewing gallery, a closet made properly with lattice windows, wrote one eyewitness, hidden from the sight of the congregation, so as not to distract from the splendid young couple, who were both dressed head to toe in white satin. Despite their constricted view of the proceedings, the king and queen would have been satisfied to hear the crowds, both inside and outside St. Paul's, cheering King Henry and Prince Arthur. A greater victory would have been harder to imagine, and the royal family celebrated appropriately. Then, following a fortnight of masks, balls, jousts, and celebration, the newlyweds were packed off to the seat of Arthur's authority, Ludlow, and the marches in his Principality of Wales. Prince Arthur's marriage wasn't the only step that Henry VII had taken to expand the connection of his family. Long negotiations were also underway to marry twelve-year-old Margaret to James IV of Scotland, whose appetite for raiding and burning northern England would presumably diminish if he could be drawn into a dynastic union. The treaty was concluded two months after Arthur's wedding celebrations, and Margaret would eventually marry the Scottish king at a magnificent service of her own, held at Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh on August the 8th, 1503. But by that time, disaster had engulfed the House of Tudor. On April the 2nd, 1502, Prince Arthur died at Ludlow, following a form of wasting disease that may have been tuberculosis, but could have been a form of cancer. He was only 15, and his wife became a widow at 16. Henry VII and Queen Elizabeth were devastated, and although the Queen attempted to comfort her husband with words of cheer, suggesting that they were both young enough to have more children, Arthur's death was a blow from which the King would never recover.
it left all his hopes of a clean succession on the shoulders of Prince Henry, who was approaching his tenth birthday. Immediately, negotiations were opened by which Henry could be married to Catherine, who remained in English eyes as promising a future queen as ever. But Henry VII's life experience counseled against relying on such thin hopes for the future. Another Tudor death occurred within months of Arthur's. The king's quiet and reclusive uncle, Owen Tudor, the monk of Westminster, died close to the age of seventy and was buried some time before June 1502. But this was nothing next to the misery that followed on February the 11th, 1503, when Queen Elizabeth also died, following the premature birth of her last child, a girl named Catherine. The king had been told by his personal astrologer that his wife would live until the grand age of eighty. In fact, she died on her thirty-seventh birthday. Her daughter Catherine survived her only by a week. The king paid around £2,800 for a vast and solemn funeral for his wife, in which every church in London was draped in black. His sorrow was deep, almost tangible. In less than eighteen months, all his plans for the future of his dynasty had collapsed. The shadow cast by Arthur's death was long and dark, and it changed the whole character of Henry VII's reign. The king's general mood shifted from celebratory to suspicious, as his fears of losing everything for which he had fought suddenly seemed closer than ever to being realized. Consequently, he began to cast a paranoid eye upon many of his subjects, regarding with naked hostility all those who he thought might have a motive for challenging his rule. Chief among the victims of the king's forebodings were the Delapole family, a large brood born to John Delapole, Duke of Suffolk, and his wife Elizabeth Plantagenet, Edward IV's sister. The eldest of these children was the Earl of Lincoln, who had died in rebellion at the Battle of Stoke with Lambert Simnel by his side. In the years that followed Stoke, Henry hadn't seen fit to damn Lincoln's siblings on account of their brother's violent treachery. After Arthur's death, however, young men with Yorkist connections didn't need to do much to draw upon themselves the suspicions of the king. Four Delapole men were alive at the turn of the century, Edmund, Humphrey, William, and Richard. Humphrey was a monk and thus politically neutral. The others, however, could be considered as potentially dangerous. First among these was Edmund de la Pole, Earl of Suffolk. Although loyal during the 1490s, he helped to put down the Cornish rebels at Blackheath in 1497, close to his cousin the Queen and a regular attendee at court parties and great state occasions, Edmund had some cause for disgruntlement, mainly stemming from his financial troubles. Too poor to maintain himself as a duke, he had been downgraded to the rank of earl when he inherited his title in 1493, yet even in this reduced condition he held his noble title on such onerous conditions that most of his yearly income diverted to the crown, meaning that he was embarrassed by very heavy debts. 
He'd been further humiliated by involvement in the legal case brought in 1498, in which he was accused of murdering a man named Thomas Crewe, and told to make a groveling apology in order to receive the royal pardon. And on top of all this, he was recognized by all those who remained inclined to the House of York as a senior claimant on Edward IV's side. In debt, in political trouble, in demand by the king's enemies, and, if we believe the account of Virgil, bold, impetuous, and readily roused to anger, Suffolk began to agitate against the king. He committed his first act of defiance on July 1st, 1499, when he left England without royal permission and travelled to Picardy, trying to make contact with the Yorkist doyenne Margaret of Burgundy. This had caused a serious diplomatic incident, but Suffolk was eventually brought home in October, apologised to the king, and accepted a fine of £1,000, more than a year's income, which further crippled his finances. His friends and associates were interrogated, and his wife, Margaret Scroop, was placed under royal surveillance. Then, as if any further warning to would-be plotters were required, in November 1499, Edward, Earl of Warwick, was beheaded. King Henry was making his point. If all this was intended to force Suffolk into obedience, however, it had precisely the opposite effect. In November 1501, as Arthur and Catherine of Aragon's wedding was being celebrated, he once again slipped out of England, taking with him his youngest brother, Richard de la Pole, and made his way across Europe to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian at Imst. He had been assured that he would find support there for the cause that he would now openly trumpet for the next five years. His claim that he, and not a member of the Tudor family, was the rightful King of England. When he heard of Edmund's defection, Henry's first step was to round up and punish all those whom he could connect with the White Rose, as Suffolk's supporters had begun to call him. Richard de la Pole had fled to the continent with Edmund, but their brother, Sir William de la Pole, hadn't. Therefore he was arrested and thrown into the tower indefinitely. He would eventually die there in the 1530s. Then William, Lord Courtney, the heir to the earldom of Devon, who had married the Queen's younger sister, Catherine, was also imprisoned and remained locked up for nearly a decade. Previously loyal knights, including Sir James Tyrrell, Sir John Wyndham and several others connected, however weakly, to the White Rose, were executed. Tyrrell was conveniently induced to confess to having murdered the princes in the tower before he died, which was one effective means of Henry's reminding his subjects that Edward IV's boys really were dead, and their cause no longer worth heralding. Beyond these grand men, Dozens of other yeomen, royal servants, and ordinary tradesmen were rounded up, interrogated, and in many cases put miserably to death. Henry once more set to work planting spies and informants in a network fanning out across Europe. There was some good news in 1503, when the king's most vehement foreign opponent, Margaret of Burgundy, died at Mechelen on November the 23rd. 
The same year, Maximilian yielded to sustained diplomatic pressure and agreed to end his financial support for the Della Poles. Still, though, Henry couldn't secure Suffolk's person. He attempted to arrange his assassination via royal agents in Calais, again to no avail. The English Parliament of January 1504 convicted the Della Poles of falsely and traitorously plotting and conspiring the death and destruction of the king, our sovereign lord, and the overthrow of this his realm, and attainted them in absentia. Still, none of it resulted in Delapole's death or return. But by 1505, Henry has succeeded in squeezing the White Rose cause so hard that virtually no court or officer in Europe would proffer any financial aid. From March 1504, Richard de la Pole was locked up in Aachen as a hostage to secure debts that the family had incurred there, and only escaped in 1506. Suffolk, meanwhile, was reduced to wandering the Low Countries with an increasingly tiny group of aides and supporters living in debt, dressed in rags and pawning his possessions for food. At home, the violent persecution of suspected White Rose sympathizers continued. By October 1505, the pathetic Suffolk was in Namur, in the custody of Maximilian's eldest son, Philip the Handsome, Duke of Burgundy, and was readying himself to try to make peace with Henry VII, end his dismal penury, and return home in whatever grace he could, praying that his life at least would be spared but events would overtake him. In the middle of January 1506, Philip, Archduke of Burgundy, and his wife Joanna set sail from Flanders for Spain, where Philip was to seize possession of the crown of Castile. But the midwinter was a bad time to be braving the northern seas. As a couple sailed, an evil storm suddenly arose. It was one of the fiercest ever known, which one London chronicler remembered as having blown with such sternness that it turned over weak houses and trees, taking the thatch and tiles from rooftops, flooding the countryside, and blowing the weathercock from the top of St. Paul's Cathedral. It crashed into a tavern called the Black Eagle and caused considerable damage. Out at sea, Philip and Joanna were lucky not to be drowned. Their ships were blown into port at Weymouth, where Philip, who was little accustomed to the ocean waves and exhausted in both body and mind, was delighted to disembark his battered craft. But delight didn't last long. The couple was given a splendid welcome as guests of the English king, but beneath the finery and the hospitality lay a stark political reality. Philip and Joanna were now effectively Henry's prisoners. The terms of their release were twofold, a trade agreement loaded heavily in favour of English merchants, and an agreement to return Edmund de la Pole. By the end of March, Suffolk had been collected by English officers at Calais and transferred across the now calm channel. On his return, Philip and Joanna were allowed to go on their way. Despite Henry's promise that he would pardon the fugitive, and return him to his former estate, Suffolk was thrown into the Tower of London. The White Rose 
would never see the outside world again. The burdens and disappointments of middle age brought about a sorry decline in Henry VII. He was forty-nine when Edmund de la Pole was finally returned to his grasp, and as his sight failed and his health began to stutter, he became increasingly withdrawn, suspicious, and tyrannical. His most trusted servants and counsellors began to die. His uncle Jasper Tudor, Duke of Bedford, had died in 1495, having retreated from public life since his sixtieth birthday around four years previously. Cardinal John Morton, who had served as a faithful and diligent Archbishop of Canterbury from the beginning of the reign, died in 1500. Sir Reginald Bray, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, who had been a loyal servant since long before Bosworth, expired in 1503. The King's stepfather, Thomas Stanley, Earl of Derby, died in 1504. The circle of trust around the King tightened yearly. In response, Henry's approach to government, which had always relied on heavy personal oversight, particularly with regard to financial matters, now degenerated into more or less rule by extortion. Henry came to see all external power as threatening to his own. He began to employ an extensive system of bonds and recognizances, by which wealthy and influential individuals were forced to agree to pay the king exorbitant sums in the event of his displeasure as a means of guaranteeing their good behavior. The system, used on a grand and virtually unprecedented scale, was associated most closely with two determined and ruthless young officers of the crown, Sir Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley, whose rule over the realm was generally loathed, and whose names were synonymous with the perversions of normal governance that afflicted the king's final years. Henry was growing sicker. His kingdom was becoming ever more badly ruled. And by the end, he was clinging on, employing methods of rule that hadn't been seen in England since the darkest days before the deposition of Richard II in 1399. During the early years of his reign, Henry had proven himself an extremely successful and self-consciously majestic king. Even if he had never possessed the easy bonhomie that had characterized the rule of the man he claimed to succeed, Edward IV. But by the end, he governed by fear, fortunate that the best alternative candidates for kingship were either dead, exiled, or locked away in his prisons. He died following a lingering illness on April the 21st, 1509, and was succeeded by his 17-year-old son, Henry VIII. The succession was a nervous, secretive affair, stage managed by the wizened and arthritis-crippled Margaret Beaufort, by now approaching her 66th birthday, but still as acute a political operative as she had ever been. The effort took his toll. She died on June the 29th, 1509, buried in an astonishingly beautiful tomb in the new Lady Chapel at Westminster Abbey, made by the Italian sculptor Pietro Torrigiano, who also made Henry VII's tomb.
She had lived long enough to witness the coronation of her grandson, the crowning triumph of an eventful life. Not since the accession of Henry V in 1413 had an adult, or nearly adult, king inherited the throne from his father. Margaret Beaufort, an astonishing woman in any age, had been a key player in the long struggles that were waged over the English crown. Victory and vindication were hers. Young Henry came to the throne confident and ready to rule. He was well-educated, charming, and charismatic, truly a prince fit for the Renaissance in courtly style, taste, and patronage that was dawning in Northern Europe. He had been blessed with the fair colouring and radiant good looks of his grandfather, Edward IV, tall, handsome, well-built, and dashing. Here was a king who saw his subjects as peers and allies around whom he had grown up, rather than semi-alien enemies to be suspected and persecuted. One of the new king's first acts was to issue a general pardon, pointedly excluding the Della Poles, the detested Empson and Dudley, and around eighty named others. Shortly afterward he married his brother's twenty-three-year-old widow, Catherine of Aragon, and then, as soon as possible following the deaths of his father and grandmother, the new king, modelling himself on his legendary ancestor Henry V, began planning for a war in France. Over the course of a century, all of the French lands traditionally claimed by English kings have been lost. Like his Plantagenet forebears, young Henry made it his ambition to win them back. Beginning in 1512, Henry would send armies over the Channel to torment the French. If not especially successful, they were at least highly enjoyable to a military society that had had precious little opportunity to fight abroad since the 1450s. Here was a young king who seemed naturally to understand the style and much of the art of kingship from the very beginning. For emulating Henry V, wasn't a challenge limited solely to the mind of Henry VIII. In 1513 to 1514, a book entitled The First English Life of Henry V had been published, lauding the memory of the hero of Agincourt for the explicit purpose of guiding the new king toward the example of Henry V's great wisdom and discretion, and praying that he might be provoked in his said war against the French. In this, the author found a much more willing audience than the Italian humanist Tito Livio Frullovisi, whose Vita Enrici Quinti had been ignored by Henry VI in the 1430s. Henry VIII's purpose as king, however, was to be more than simply Henry V reborn. The new king was also, as the poets and propagandists of the new reign pointed out gleefully, the living manifestation of the Tudor's self-made myth. Henry was, to quote his tutor, John Skelton, the rose both red and white. He was neither Lancaster nor York, but both, the heir of both Henry VI and Richard, Duke of York, unity personified. The Tudor rose continued to abound as a motif of his reign, it adorned buildings and decorated royal palaces. 
It was painted in choir books and illustrated manuscripts prepared for the king's library. It was even doodled on the king's private prayer roll. Hope, which had been long frozen under the later rule of Henry VII, was reawakened by the accession of his son. Yet, under his bluff and bold exterior, Henry VIII could be as ruthless as his father had been. Although his position was much improved as a king who had legitimately inherited his crown, rather than having wrenched it from a dying rival on a battlefield, he couldn't afford wholly to ignore the dynastic vulnerabilities that had occupied his father's mind so feverishly. In the tower, Edmund de la Pole was potentially a toxic prisoner, while Richard de la Pole remained at large somewhere across the sea. Aging Yorkist diehards might still harbour a grudge, and while Henry VIII could afford to be magnanimous in his newly acquired kingship, he restored George, Duke of Clarence's daughter Margaret Pole, to her estates, and promoted her to a position of dignity and independence, giving her the old family title of Countess of Salisbury. He knew he wasn't wholly free of the enemies whom his father had made, and he was prepared to act swiftly and savagely, if necessary, to contain them. The catalyst was Henry's war in France. As a young, thrusting king with an urge to prove himself, and a talented and rising new first minister by the name of Thomas Wolsey, Henry launched a second invasion of France in 1513, which he led himself, while Queen Catherine stayed at home as regent to oversee renewed hostilities with the Scottish king, James IV. But Henry couldn't in good conscience go over to France and risk his life in battle in the knowledge that he held in captivity a man who had very recently claimed the crown of England for himself. It was feared that when the king was out of the country, the people might perhaps be eager for a revolution. They might snatch Edmund forcibly from the tower and give him his liberty, wrote Virgil. Shortly before the king embarked for France, he gave the order that Edmund de la Pole, erstwhile Earl of Suffolk, should have his stay in the prison abruptly terminated. On May the 4th, 1513, the White Rose was taken out of prison, hauled up to Tower Hill, and summarily beheaded. There was, however, one more left. One White Rose had been lopped off, but another grew from the same stem. Richard de la Pole had been at large ever since absconding from England with his brother in 1501. After his brother's capture and repatriation, Richard had wound up in Buda, in the Kingdom of Hungary, where he made an unlikely success of his career in exile under the protection of King Ladislaus II, who paid Richard a pension until 1516, I made sure that he stayed far beyond the reach of the frustrated English kings. Financially secure and warlike by nature, Richard distinguished himself on the battlefield, fighting in the wars that raged in the unstable kingdoms and fiefdoms of northern Italy, southern France, and the Spanish peninsula. He was a talented and brave captain, well respected by those who saw him fight, and he quickly made powerful friends including the French Dauphin, 
Francis. From 1513, when his brother was killed, he claimed the title of Duke of Suffolk, and adopted the nickname White Rose, or variations thereof, including Blanche Rose and La Rosa Blanca. As ever, in continental politics and war, the possession of a rival claimant to the English throne was a great boon for anyone who wished to vex the King of England. Thus, when Henry VIII invaded France in 1513, Louis XII recognized Richard de la Pole as the rightful King of England. The transaction was clear. If Henry wished to reopen the foreign wars of his Plantagenet ancestors, then in return, Louis was more than happy to reopen the question of the English succession. In 1514, he equipped de la Pole with an army of 12,000 men, much larger than the force that had accompanied Henry VII when he crossed the sea and successfully deposed Richard III in 1485. The army was rumoured to be ready to depart from Normandy in June 1514, and it's very possible that it would have left had not Henry VIII decided against sending another expensive army to France that summer, choosing instead to make a peace with the ageing French king, by which Henry's eighteen-year-old sister Mary married Louis and became Queen of France. She would hold the position for only three months, because Louis died on New Year's Day 1515 to be succeeded by his cousin, Francis I. The peace was well-timed, and averted the threat of a Yorkist invasion, but it was still clear that under Richard de la Pole's tenacious leadership, Henry VIII was no more able to ignore the threat of the White Rose than his father had been. Before long, he had resorted to much the same tactics as the old king, hiring assassins, commissioning spies to work the European channels, and applying diplomatic pressure to try to keep the White Rose at bay. But none of it worked. Like Henry VIII, Francis I was a young, thrusting, and lively king determined to make an impression. More important, he was friendly with Richard de la Pole. So support for the White Rose continued. There were rumours of an invasion under or arising in the name of the would-be Richard IV in 1516, 1521, 1522, 1523, and 1524. None ever came to fruition. But Henry and his ministers were seldom allowed to forget that every move abroad came with a potential price in domestic harmony. And in the end, only the unexpected outcome of a battle fought halfway across Europe would bring Henry VIII the dynastic security he so badly craved. Before the sun had risen on February the 24th, 1525, a French army led in person by Francis I was moving around the walls of Pavia, a heavily fortified military town in the heart of Lombardy, some twenty miles south of Milan. More than twenty thousand men had been camped out in siege formation around Pavia for nearly four months, attempting to starve out the nine thousand men, mainly mercenaries, who were inside the city walls. They were about to be confronted by an equally mighty relieving force of fighters loyal to the Spanish Emperor Charles V, 
with whom Francis was pursuing what would be a long, complex and bloody war for domination of the Italian peninsula. From first light, the assault began, the crash of cannons and arquebus mingling with the rumble of cavalry hooves as two gigantic armies flew into each other with utter ferocity. Richard de la Pole was in command of the French infantry fighting alongside another experienced and capable Captain François de Lorraine, who commanded a crack unit of mercenary lance-connects known as the Black Band. But February the 24th wasn't to prove a blessed day for either man. During a battle that raged for nearly four hours, the French army was split and finally routed by a fierce and brilliantly organized Spanish imperial effort. Francis I was knocked from his horse and pinned to the ground before being chivalrously picked up and taken as a prisoner for Charles V. The casualties on the French side were appalling and included many commanders and captains. The French lost a miserable field and with it their position in Lombardy from which they would retreat at great speed almost as soon as the battle was over. And by the end of the battle, Richard de la Pole, the White Rose, last remaining grandson of Richard, Duke of York, and rival King of England, lay dead. The shock and scale of the French defeat stunned many in Europe, but it absolutely delighted Henry VIII and Cardinal Wolsey. French fortunes in war, which had ridden so high for so long, now stood in tatters. Their king a humiliated captive, their armies destroyed. Henry could now seriously begin to plot a repeat of the feats of his ancestor, Henry V. To storm France, recover the ancient Plantagenet patrimony, and restore English rule from Normandy to Gascony. He could even fantasize if his allies should prove themselves agreeable about taking back the crown of France, which Henry VI had last worn in Paris in 1431. And all of this could be conceived without the tiresome prospect of a French king conjuring up another puppet claimant to the English throne. Delapole was dead. The price of war abroad need no longer be plotting and intrigue at home. Now conquest wouldn't have to be weighed against dynastic security. The ghosts of the previous century could finally be forgotten. A French historian writing in the 18th century described, or perhaps imagined, the conversation between Henry VIII and the messenger who found the king in bed during the early days of March 1525 and broke to him the news of the Battle of Pavia having discoursed at length about the capture of Francis I and the destruction of the French army, the messenger went on to report the wonderful news about the last white rose. God have mercy on his soul, Henry is said to have exclaimed. All the enemies of England are gone. And then, pointing to the messenger, he cried, Give him more wine. Epilogue The death of the last White Rose in 1525 
was really the last rattle of opposition to the crown to have its origins in the wars that had shaken the realm since the first outbreak of violence during Henry VI's reign in the 1450s. By the 1520s, the generation that ruled and moved England were, by and large, not veterans of Bosworth or Stoke. Anyone who had participated in either of those battles would be in his fifties, approaching old age by the standards of the time. Few could now remember the horrors of Towton. Henry VIII's generation were children of relative peace, and though the elderly would have spoken of the violence of civil war and shared their memories of the ferocious battles that had taken place in the Midlands, the marches of Wales, the outskirts of London and the far north, the truth was that most of the protagonists and participants of the wars were long dead. The wounds were passing into the realm of history and folklore. One very important reason for this was that the central issue that had lain at the root of the wars appeared to have been resolved. This wasn't a case of the power of an overmighty nobility having been blunted, of a system we now call bastard feudalism having been destroyed, or of a radical shift having occurred in the power structures of England, as has sometimes been argued. Rather, it was the result of a final restoration of determined and legitimate kingship that would have been recognizable to men who had lived a century earlier, during the heyday of the Plantagenets. Henry VIII wasn't merely a king who had inherited his crown by right of birth rather than conquest. He was a majestic, assertive, warlike prince who combined the swagger and grit of Edward IV with the appetite for all the trappings of Renaissance princeliness that was common to the other great monarchs of his generation. Most especially Francis I of France and Charles V, King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor. Although the Wars of the Roses had in the 1480s become wars of dynastic legitimacy, their origins weren't as a squabble about blood. Rather, they had lain squarely in the English polity's inability to cope with the inane, destructively pliant kingship of Henry VI. This vacillating king, peaceful and pious, had unleashed a half-century of political trauma. Henry VIII could hardly have presented a more different character. Our king is not after gold or gems or precious metals, but virtue, glory, and immortality. The English scholar-courtier Lord Mountjoy had written to the great Dutch humanist Erasmus on Henry VIII's accession in 1509. Henry had many faults, as the second half of his reign would amply demonstrate, but during his early years it was clear that personal authority had finally been restored to the crown by a king whose right to rule was stronger than that of any of his predecessors since 1422. Henry's accession thus solved two problems at once. It addressed the vague and random problem of personal authority on the part of the man who happened to become king, and the question of legitimacy as a matter of blood right, which had been disastrously thrown open in 1460 when Richard, Duke of York, had decided to abandon his quest for political leadership and claim the crown. 
The basic symbols and images of Tudor kingship presented Henry VIII as the embodiment of red and white rose reunited. He understood the role and played it perfectly. This isn't to say, of course, that Henry could afford to ignore dynastic threats completely, as the Richard de la Pole saga had demonstrated. Alternative Plantagenet and Yorkist lines of royal descent were thin, but they still existed. In the spring of 1521, Henry had acted ruthlessly to press charges of treason, conspiring or imagining the king's death, against Edward Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, whose long line of descent from Thomas of Woodstock connected him to Edward III, and whose loud mouth, insufferable pride and arrogant bearing had been inherited all too obviously from his father, the foolish kingmaker duke who had rebelled against Richard III. Edward's crime was largely a case of grumbling about royal policy, listening to prophecies concerning the king's life, and muttering that he himself might one day make a better monarch. But this was enough to bring down the greatest nobleman in England. Buckingham was subjected to a show trial at Westminster Hall, had a guilty verdict delivered to him by a tearful Duke of Norfolk, and was beheaded at the Tower of London on May the 17th, 1521. The charges against him were largely trumped up, and his trial stage managed to produce the inevitable judgment. It's hard to imagine that Buckingham would have been so sorely treated by the king were it not for the Plantagenet blood of which he was so proud. Other noble families might have presented Henry with concerns if he had put his mind firmly to it, but by the end of the 1520s the king's mind was occupied with dynastic matters of a different sort. His marriage to his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon, had produced only one surviving child, Princess Mary, and his head had been turned by the woman who would become his second wife. Anne Boleyn. The issues of religious reform that exploded out of his search for a divorce during the early 1530s provided new political dividing lines, just as deadly as those that had existed between the various factions of Lancaster, York, Neville, Tudor, and the rest during the 15th century. To be sure, dynastic issues were still alive, but they were now fused with the politics of religion, shaped by domestic concerns and Henry's increasingly monstrous sexual psychology and hunger for power and grandeur. It was in this context that he persecuted the Pole family, condemning the aged Margaret Pole to her hideous butchery of the block in the tower in 1541, cursing Cardinal Reginald Pole's name all around Europe, and having another of Margaret's sons, Henry Pole, Lord Montague, likewise executed for high treason on January the 9th, 1539, alongside Henry Courtney, Marquess of Exeter. Montague's and Exeter's principal crime was to oppose the king on matters of religion, and to rebel, or be suspected of rebelling, against the royal supremacy. The fact that Margaret Pole was the daughter of George, Duke of Clarence, and one of the only remaining links to the wars of the 15th century, 
wasn't on its own enough to justify her losing her head in 1541, but it was almost certainly an aggravating factor in her execution. All the same, the death of Margaret Pole still represents a watershed. She was the last aristocrat who could claim with much seriousness to carry Plantagenet blood in her veins. The pseudo-royal families of York, Beaufort, Holland, Delapole, and Pole were effectively all gone. The Nevilles and Staffords had been bludgeoned into submission. The old nobility had by no means been destroyed as a unit of society, but many great and ancient families had been wiped out. How many men, in the name of God immortal, have you killed? wrote Reginald Pole, raging at Henry for the judicial murder of his mother. The answer was simple. Enough. The politics that stirred men's hearts and moved their hands to their swords in anger had shifted decisively from dynasty to faith. When the king died in 1547, the great arguments of his children's reigns weren't Lancaster versus York, but evangelism versus papism, reform versus the old ways, and ultimately Protestant versus Catholic. The wars of the roses were well and truly over. And yet, on Saturday, January the 14th, 1558, at about two o'clock, Henry VIII's youngest daughter, Elizabeth, rode through London from the Tower down to Westminster on the eve of her coronation. As usual, a great series of pageants had been organized to illustrate the many ways in which the new Queen's Majesty was righteous and worthy. At the corner of Fenchurch Street and Gracechurch Street, a large stage was erected across the street, vaulted with battlements and built on three separate levels. The official record of the procession recorded that on the lowest stage was made one seat royal, wherein were placed two personages, representing King Henry VII and Elizabeth his wife, daughter of King Edward IV, not divided, but that the one of them which was King Henry, processing out of the house of Lancaster, was enclosed in a red rose, and the other, which was Queen Elizabeth, being heir to the house of York, enclosed with a white rose, out of the which two roses sprang, two branches gathered into one, which were directed upward to the second stage, wherein was placed one, representing the valiant and noble Prince King Henry VIII. Beside this Henry sat his second wife, Anne Boleyn, and on the stage above them sat a final figure, representing Elizabeth I herself, crowned and apparelled as the other princes were. The whole pageant was garnished with red roses and white, and in the forefront of the same pageant, in a fair wreath, was written, The Uniting of the Two Houses of Lancaster and York. A great play was made on Elizabeth's name, like Elizabeth of York, who brought unity to the realm through her marriage. It was explained the new Elizabeth would maintain the same among her subjects. Unity, said the official account, was the end whereat the whole device shot. Those men and women of London who stood and gawped as the Queen's procession passed by 
would have understood instantly the version of history that was being suggested by the Rose pageant. It had, after all, been repeated at length for more than seventy years. Buildings were decorated with the Tudor roses and other associated emblems of the dynasty. Great stained-glass windows installed in churches during the sixteenth century blazed with red and white petals. Anyone who had been lucky enough to browse the books of the Royal Library would have found the exquisite illustrations on the pages decorated with roses, red, white, and Tudor. In many cases, these were added to books that had been inherited from earlier kings, particularly Edward IV. Other books, too, were emblazoned with the simplified dynastic story of the Wars of the Roses. Nowhere can Tudor teleology be seen more clearly expressed than in the title of Edward Hall's Chronicle, or, to give it its full title, The Union of the Two Noble and Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York, being long in continual dissension for the crown of this noble realm, with all the acts done in both the times of the princes, both of the one lineage and of the other, beginning at the time of King Henry IV, the first author of this division, and so successively proceeding to the reign of the high and prudent prince, King Henry VIII, the indubitate flower and the very heir of both the said lineages. As if this weren't clear enough, the frontispiece to the publisher Richard Grafton's 1550 edition of Hall's Chronicle made things visually unmistakable. The writhing branches of a rose bush prickled their way around the title, growing from the bottom of the page. On either side they were occupied by rival members of the broken Plantagenet dynasty. At the very top of the page, inevitably, sat the magnificently porcine figure of Henry VIII, the Messiah, the end of history. The frontispiece was such a popular motif that it was repeated and reused on other unconnected works. The same family tree appeared unmodified in John Stowe's 1550 and 1561 editions of Chaucer's works, introducing the section on the Canterbury Tales. Just as John, Duke of Bedford, had plastered occupied France with genealogies, advertising the legitimacy of the joint monarchy during the 1520s, just as Edward IV had obsessively compiled genealogies tracing his rightful royal descent from centuries long gone, so too did the Tudors drive home the simple visual message both of their right to rule and of their version of history. By Elizabeth's reign, the mere sight of red and white roses entwined was enough to evoke instantly the whole story of the fifteenth century— the crown had been thrown into dispute and disarray by the Lancastrian deposition of Richard II in 1399. This had prompted nearly a century of warfare between two rival clans, which was a form of divine punishment for the overthrow of a rightful king. Finally, in 1485, the Tudors had reunited the families and saved the realm. It was that simple. By the 1590s, when Elizabeth I was old, her own reign decaying and a new crisis of rule beginning to loom, the Tudor story of the 15th century was a matter not only of historical fact,
but of public entertainment. A generation of playwrights mined the monumental histories of Hall and his successor, Raphael Hollenshed, to unearth material for a new and extremely well-received form of spectacle, the English history play. One of the most popular eras for depiction on the stage was the 15th century, and the greatest of all the dramatists was William Shakespeare. In and around 1591, the dating is a matter of dispute, Shakespeare wrote, or more likely contributed to, the play that is now called Henry VI, Part One. The play's events concern the early stages of the Wars of the Roses, charting the loss of England's lands in France and the political upheaval that resulted. In the famous Rose Garden scene, Richard, Duke of York, called here Richard Plantagenet, and various other noblemen squabble and align into two factions, selecting red or white roses to represent them. Richard Plantagenet Let him that is a true-born gentleman and stands upon the honour of his birth, if he suppose that I have pleaded truth from off this briar, pluck a white rose with me. He plucks a white rose. Somerset, let him that is no coward nor no flatterer, but dare maintain the party of the truth, pluck a red rose from off this thorn with me. He plucks a red rose. Warwick, I love no colours, and without all colour of base insinuating flatter, I pluck this white rose with Plantagenet. Suffolk, I pluck this red rose with young Somerset, and say with all, I think he held the right. Somerset, well, I'll find friends to wear my bleeding roses. Above the hubbub of a late Elizabethan theatre, the nuances of political history could be lost. But the mere sight of actors, dressed as aristocrats, teamed off according to their choice of rose, was designed to be instantly understood. Henry VI, Part One eventually became part of the cycle of Shakespeare's two historical tetralogies, eight plays that run, if arranged according to their historical chronology, from Richard II to Richard III, and which portray the whole course of pre-Tudor 15th century history. The message that had been concocted by Henry VII, nearly 100 years previously, had become entrenched in public consciousness. And there it has remained, more or less, ever since. As we have seen, the Wars of the Roses and the destruction of the House of Plantagenet didn't really come about because two factions divided by blood were destined to atone through war for the sin of deposing Richard II. All the evil of the 15th century wasn't embodied in a villainous Richard III, any more than the marriage of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York provided instant salvation. Rather, this was a vicious and at times barely comprehensible period of deep political instability, which stemmed ultimately from a collapse in royal authority and English rule in France under Henry VI. In a system in which law, order, justice and peace flowed so heavily from the person of the king and the office of the crown, Henry VI's reign and his afterlife between deposition in 1461 and his death ten years later 
was a disaster. The English system of government was robust in the 1420s and 1430s, robust enough to deal with a minority of nearly two decades. But it wasn't robust enough to deal with an adult king who simply wouldn't perform his role. For a time, under Henry VII, there was an attempt to rehabilitate his memory, with the old king proposed as a candidate for sainthood, who had performed wonderful miracles, including healing a man who had been run over by a wagon, or a young boy who had been injured during a football game. Under Henry VIII, however, this was quietly dropped in favour of reverence for the more obviously inspiring example of Henry V. It was difficult to sustain much interest in a man whose doleful and agonisingly long rule wreaked long-term damage on the English crown that took decades to repair. Edward IV undid a great deal of the appalling harm that had been caused by Henry VI, repairing much of the fabric of royal government and taking to kingship with extraordinary brio and competence. But he made two bad mistakes. The first was to marry Elizabeth Woodville, whose large family couldn't be easily accommodated into a political system that had just endured such a rough shaking. The second was to die in April 1483, not a matter about which he had much choice in the short term, although it is possible to argue that his physical decline in his later years was self-inflicted by his fondness for gorging and idleness. All the same, the combination of a child heir and a Woodville faction that couldn't or wouldn't be accommodated was too much for a fragile and weather-beaten political system to bear. That said, Richard III's ruthless usurpation of the crown wasn't and couldn't have been foreseen by anyone, and it unleashed a period of bloody desperation in which the crown was all but up for grabs to anyone who could show a strain of royal blood and raise a foreign army. It was this battle, fought hot between 1483 and 1487 and cold between 1487 and 1525, that was won by the Tudors, not the Wars of the Roses as a whole. Nevertheless, the fact is that the Tudors did win and like all historical winners, they reserved the right to tell their story. A story that has endured to this day. The End You've been listening to The Wars of the Roses, The Fall of the Plantagenets and the Rise of the Tudors, by Dan Jones, narrated by John Curlis. If you've enjoyed this book and this performance, Recorded Books recommends Elizabeth of York, A Tudor Queen and Her World, by Alison Weir, narrated by Maggie Mash. Many are familiar with the story of the much-married King Henry VIII of England, and, of course, the much-celebrated reign of his daughter, Elizabeth I. But it is often forgotten that the life of the first Tudor Queen, Elizabeth of York, Henry's mother and Elizabeth's grandmother, spanned one of England's most dramatic and perilous periods. Now, Alison Weir, best-selling author and acclaimed historian, presents the first modern biography of this extraordinary woman, 
whose very existence united the realm and ensured the survival of the Plantagenet bloodline. Recorded Books offers a wide selection of bestsellers, mysteries, classics, histories, and more. So look for us at your public library or on download sites online. And thank you for being a Recorded Books reader. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.